welcome to this week's episode of the Abandoned Normal Devices podcast, episode 7 from the 2021 festival. This week, Danny Adnes, the curator, is in conversation with Luisa Prado de Martins about their work and the exhibition Toxicity's Reach. Before we begin a conversation, I wanted to explain a little further why the project chooses to trace the effects of synthetic chemicals found in our waterways. To do this, I'd like to talk through a few examples from my curatorial research. These findings brought me to the understanding that we live in a new age of toxicity. And this new age requires a cultural and political retuning to our times. Firstly, the Toxteth riots. Toxteth is an area of Liverpool that stretches for around three miles along the banks of the River Mersey and two miles inland the highest point being on the corner of Smithdown Lane and Lodge Lane. From the 3rd of July in the summer of 1981, the area saw four nights of rioting, followed by six weeks of unrest, during which 150 buildings were burnt down and countless shops were looted, 258 police officers needed hospital treatment, and 160 people were arrested. These events, known as the Toxteth Riots, were sparked following the arrest of a black motorcyclist by police, and their effects left a powerful mark on the city. The rioting also brought Liverpool to national attention, and following them, the then Secretary of State and Conservative MP Michael Heseltine used them to highlight the city's pollution problems, thus becoming a catalyst for several regeneration projects across Liverpool. One of these regeneration projects was the Mersey River Basin Campaign, the MBC. The MBC was the largest and most rigorous ecological restoration project the estuary had ever seen. It lasted 25 years, cost four billion pounds and harnessed the efforts of public authorities, private investors and voluntary organisations to revitalise the area concentrating on water quality and bankside redevelopment. The second finding was about the long history of pollution in the Mersey River and um, and the estuary. The Mersey has a long history of receiving polluting inputs from a variety of anthropogenic sources along its watercourse. Liverpool was not only a hub in the transatlantic slave trade that generated huge wealth for some in the city and beyond, but also central to the development of Britain's chemical industry. In the 18th century, the textile, tanning, pottery and mining industries from Manchester to the Midlands used chemicals to fix, bleach and separate matter that, after they were used, were poured straight into the brackish waters of the estuary. Before the 20th century, pollution was often thought of as a sign of a city's progress. But by the 1900s, the extraction of materials and their use in manufactured goods um, became more complex and it became the norm for societies to symbolically and physically remove the nuances, inconveniences and risks of pollution sort of out of sight. So in the 1900s, there was this also an explosion in a number of uh, different industries carbon-based chemistry, petrochemistry, synthetic organic chemistry, synthetic rubber and plastics, they're all derived from fossil fuels and other carbon-based derivatives. This rise, both in production and synthetic chemistry, is deeply entangled with the rise of consumer societies around the world, 
In the West in particular, an individual's needs over the course of the 20th century greatly changed and exerted greater and greater pressures on natural resources. So mass consumption then is deeply intertwined with strategies of industrial capitalism, advertisement and distribution chains. And the result from this is that there was a sort of creation of a new synthetic lifestyle. And this for new lifestyle created waste and pollutions, and this increased in quantity. Contaminated life became embedded into consumer society, of which some iconic products, plastics, fertilizers, pharmaceuticals, and care products, shed light on the changing scale of pollution in the 20th century. Synthetic chemicals also helped to make possible the standardization and segregation of food spaces and bodies. En masse, herbicides, pesticides and fertilizers used in the industrialized agriculture uh, industry helped to create a culture of monocrops. There is also um, an explosion of manufacturing of different types of plastics that were used in things like food packaging. And this, these were introduced into the home to slow bacterial growth. And then also we have things like the contraceptive pill, which was used to regulate and control fertility and many, many more examples. So these chemicals were introduced into mass consumerism and they helped facilitate and fed mass markets and essentially continue to find their way into the Mersey estuary today. In 2021, unspeakably vast amounts of synthetic chemicals, largely unregulated, are created, used and released as waste into our worlds every year. Built on a network of extractive industries, petrochemical, pharmaceutical and agribusiness. Chemicals such as microplastics, pharmaceuticals, fertilizers and care products work their way into our poorest lives and burden our bodies, some more than others. These synthetic chemicals are visceral, intimate and penetrative. That we all inhabit toxic worlds is what Kim Fortune has called a slow disaster often latent in our bodies and environments for many years. Today, micropolluting chemicals are found in all corners of the earth and in every living body that has been tested. Their effects keep surfacing according to their own time, which is sort of follows geological as opposed to human timeframes. So toxicity's reach has really resulted in what some have described as a permanently polluted earth. To think that we are born into toxic worlds and the earth will remain toxic long after we are gone reminds us that there is no pristine ideal to return to. So looping back to the Mersey Basin campaign that I spoke to earlier, um, by the time we get to the 1970s, locals in Liverpool would tell you that if you fell in the River Mersey, you would die of poisoning before you would drown. So the Mersey Basin campaign was much needed. And after these 25 years of ecological regeneration, for many, the MBC was seen as a successful project. It was an effective cleanup attempt that tackled obvious point sources of pollution, such as effluent and sewage. And we can see this today. Uh, in the Mersey, salmon have returned on their way upstream to spawn, otters have been spotted, and environmental regulations are met most of the time. From one vantage point then, the historic Mersey estuary may appear to be ecologically cleaner than its recent past, 
but looked at more closely, the NBC can also be shown to have neglected other narratives of toxicity, production, effects and displacement with calamitous results, I would say. In 2019, it was reported that the Mersey has more plastic in it than the Pacific garbage patch. The Earth's plastics alone weighs twice as much as the planet's marine and terrestrial animals. The Mersey also has the second highest feminization of fish in the country from synthetic endocrine disrupting chemicals. Now these come from care products uh, and pharmaceuticals that kind of get washed down through our wastewater management systems into the, into the river. <clears throat> and, you know, the reports and warnings of the cross-species harms of endocrine disrupting chemicals, EDCs, um, range from everything such as behavioural change, intersex and sterility. So they, they're really, they have potential dangers. And then thirdly, you know, as others have noted, Heseltine's regeneration definitely did deliver growth in some areas of Liverpool, but it delivered no growth in others. So most of the funds that were poured into the city did not end up into the Toxteth area. And members of the Toxteth community have been recorded as criticising the environmental and economic responses to the riots as sort of deflecting attention away from the thorny issues that they had raised, that the riots had raised, policing and racism. So, you know... What I'd like to say here is that a cleanup project like the NBC is not really an ecological restorative project, as we often think they are, but something like the NBC is also a productive project. In this case, it cleaned the Mersey according to some parameters, but it ignored certain forms of industrial waste and created new forms of maintenance, helping to sustain or produce other toxic entanglements. And these entanglements are not just biological. They are between business and government, law and politics, racism and chemistry, natural and technical systems. Secondly, the NBC did not return the Mersey estuary to some pristine ideal, but it created new geographies and forms of production, ignoring urgent needs for other types of maintenance and repair. So what the Mersey Basin campaign, as an example, shows um, shows me, I think, is that negotiating the actual ways that tox toxicity seeps into our realities, physical, social, political, and cultural, requires new frameworks and perspectives. From the scale of ourselves to the scale of global cultures, toxicity often disrupts life in one area, whilst reinforcing modes of being and doing in another. So on one hand, micropolluting chemicals that we find in the Mersey today disrupts biological life by causing ecological and biological concerns. But it also maintains industrial acts of extraction and acts of pollution and sustains other broader power systems to do with race, class and culture. So as an example, I wanted to say a little bit about this because for Toxicity's Reach, it really, the project is about how much we need to reattune to our times and reattune to this new toxicity. Hello, everybody. My name is Danny Atmos, and I am the curator of Toxicity's Reach. Um, I'd like to first say thank you to Abandoned Normal Devices, the whole of the team for um, the commission and producing uh, the exhibition and also the invitation to speak with you today. 
Toxicity's Reach is a commissioning and research project, and it considers the ways in which micro-polluting chemicals, so microplastics, synthetic chemicals and toxicants, such as pharmaceuticals, fertilizers, and care products, um, how they are entangled with, uh, with us, our environments, situations, and context today. For the festival, we have produced an online exhibition in the form of a website. Um, and this is really dedicated to thinking about the scale of toxicity, beginning from uh, the River Mersey estuary in Liverpool. <clears throat> On the site, you'll find three newly commissioned artworks by Mary Magic, Louisa Prado, Dea Martins, and Cecil Marie Ton. Each of the elements uh, experiment with the multi-sided and multi-scalar entanglements between life, this historic and industrial body of water, and the synthetic chemicals that um, you find there in great amounts today. It's multi-scalar in the fact that it's material, but it's also metaphorical. So um, a chemical that's synthesized in a factory to be used as fertilizer on a field uh, can end up leaking from the field through soils into water, into the blood and milk of animals. So there's this kind of multi-scalar element to it, but it's also metaphorical. The exhibition thinks very much about how toxicants work their way into our realities, both political, social, cultural, and ideological. In this talk, I'm thrilled to be able to um, introduce Louisa Prado de Martins, uh, who's one of our commissioning artists. Hi, Louisa. Hi. Hi. Um, before we begin our discussion about her um, new commission, I'd like to explain a little bit further uh, why the project chooses to trace the effects of synthetic chemicals. Um, and to do this, I'm going to talk through a few examples from my curatorial research during this project. Okay, then that's the pre-recorded bit. <clears throat> so then we come back. <clears throat> so Louisa Prado Dia Martins is an artist, a writer and researcher. Her work examines themes of fertility, herbal medicine, coloniality, gender and race. She's a lecturer at the Institute for Art and Context at the University of the Arts in Berlin. She's part of the Curatorial Board of Transmediale 2021, also in Berlin. She's an assistant professor and vice director of the Center for Other Worlds at the Lusifana University in Lisbon. And she's also a founding member of the Decolonizing Design Collective. Welcome, Louisa. Hi. 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 It's wonderful to have you here. Um, and I thought that we should kick off the conversation um, sort of talking a little bit about the new piece of work <clears throat> for, the, for the exhibition entitled The Sea Collapsed Into the Pleasures of Sand. So uh, this work is a GIF essay, right? Yes. And it sort of, uh, it takes as its departure point the sort of physical idea of the estuary, right? As a joining connection between the sea and the river, but then you connect it to a lot of other different things like the history of plants or plants in the area and colonial history, in particular Liverpool's relationship to the slave trade and then later on the chemical industry. I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit about the piece in your own words before we begin. Yes, of course. Um, 
this was a very interesting process, I think, to develop this piece because it was quite extended in many ways in a way that, you know, I one thing that I keep thinking and talking about, it's something that's resurfaced in conversations with friends and, um, and so on over the past year is an idea that the pandemic has kind of left me with the feeling that I'm living in an extended present. And it's, uh, we started actually talking about um, a commission for A&D last year, right? Um, and uh, I had just been to Liverpool for the first time in my life. I had never been before. And when we started talking about this, and obviously the initial idea was to have uh, a physical exhibition and to have you know physical artworks, but obviously this this did not happen because of the pandemic, and and that was kind of suspended. That idea, you know, those like initial um, embryos of an idea that we were talking about, that we were discussing, exchanging um, thoughts on, remained an embryo for for quite a while until. Uh, you and A and D contacted me again this year to say, "Hey, let's you know we're doing the festival and it's going to be transitioning online. Um, it's going to be an online kind of exhibition, and uh, we'd like to to have you again." And it was quite interesting, I think, to um, to think about this, you know, in the spring of this year happening. In, in another format and in another situation, really. It is, in a way, it still feels like we're living in an extended present and this work is perhaps, and I, I bring this up because I, I think that this work has a lot to do with that too, with the idea of an extended present um, that has, for me at least, been so dominant, such a dominant feeling over the past year. And I mentioned the extended present because, um, I, as I said, I'm not super familiar with Liverpool and with the Mercy estuary, and I would love to be able to go eventually. Um, but in a way, I feel that for this work, it was actually interesting to be able to connect with it and think about it um, in another way, in a way that was not presential necessarily, but that allowed me, I think, to tap into other aspects of this. And um, to, you know, to um, kind of articulate this a little bit better, um, the, the Mersey, um, I saw it, as I said, for the first time in the beginning of 2020, <laughs> right before the, the pandemic hit. It was actually one of the last trips that I've ever that, that I did yeah it was in February 2020. Oh wow but literally weeks like a week or two before yeah lockdown. weeks before before everything closed so and I remember it was already odd coming back things were starting to get weird it was the second to last trip that I did the, the very last was Amsterdam in beginning of March yeah, that one was very weird. Um, but yeah, and uh, that was already kind of a weird, you know, that was kind of that 
looming kind of threat, but it also didn't feel completely tangible yet or so close yet in Europe. Um, and, uh, and being in Liverpool was very interesting. I went to Liverpool, Birmingham um, on the trip and went like very briefly through Manchester. And uh, it's a part of the UK that I had never been to. And it's, a, it's this very industrial part. And seeing the Mersey specifically, I went to, on that trip, I actually went to um, do uh, an artist talk and to cook at a, at a uh, public library, the Bhutto Library. And being there and seeing that area and so seeing, you know, that such an industrial kind of area of the UK for, <clears throat> for the first time being there, that um, that estuary, that river really struck me. And of course, you know, when you contacted me and we started talking about um, the, the, I don't remember exactly when was the first time that we started talking about this. I think it must have been around the same time or very close. I think so, yeah. And, and it, what struck me about it was to, obviously I knew about the Liverpool port and its colonial history. And this is why I bring up the idea of the extended present, right? Um, because all of that is still so present, you know? And, and this is what I wanted to kind of connect, you know, this, this feeling that I've had over the past year of an extended present of a moment that kind of never ends. We're still, you know, in many ways, I felt that until very recently, I was still in March, 2020. And sometimes I even forget that 2020 happened. Like I don't count it sometimes, you know, oh, something was a year ago that was 2019. It was not a year ago, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So it, it yeah, it almost feels <clears throat> like it, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I would very much like to not count my age also in 2020. <laughs> but anyway, we're all, we all have the right to, to say that we're one year younger than we actually are at this point. Um, <laughs> because nobody really lived 2020 so that doesn't count um but but in all seriousness i do i did get a feeling that there was a history that loomed in a way that extended that it extended itself and when you first contacted me and i started looking into those waters initially i was interested in the presence of certain um, xeno, um, xenoestrogens in, in the water as a result of industrial activity. And uh, when you contacted me again this year and we kind of picked up on the idea and developed it a little bit more, I ended up extending that because um, my initial idea to look into xenohormones was of course related, you know, those are byproducts of industrial activity and um, and the production of um, certain things like plastics and so on. But I was um, this year when I started thinking about it again, I wanted to go a little bit further and not focus only on the molecular aspect or kind of a literal aspect of pollution and toxicity. But I wanted to think about the, to the toxicity of history 
and the the remnants of history this this extended weight or of of history and this extended present that is still um there and also thinking about hormones and so on i think that's kind of what led me uh, also to look a little bit further obviously into the history of the liverpool port i knew that it was an important port um for uh, i mean it was a port where so many ships sailed um to kidnap and enslave um entire peoples from the african continent bring them to the americas a lot of them also to south america um where i'm from and uh, and the connection between those points you know the connection of the liverpool port to the atlantic and to the transatlantic slave trade specifically and um, and all of that really um made me start thinking a little bit more and researching a little bit more and it's actually the port where the most ships ever sail uh from there it's like five thousand three hundred ships slaver ships sailed from the liverpool port so this is an <clears> open <throat> wound that place is an open wound and uh, you know when i started thinking about picking up on the idea of hormones and so on looking at that estuary again i started thinking that in a way this is a uh, the birth of modernity that happened in that estuary. And then I started thinking about the idea of the canal and the birth canal and that estuary being a birth canal to modernity. And, you know, when we think about birth, it is um, a, a process that, um, that also um, is associated with pain. And, and, but most importantly, I think, and this was very, I think, um, I'm just going on and on. Please interrupt oh, me. No, I mean, I am going to in a second. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, this is just like my thought process, really. Um, I started researching the Mercy. And very interestingly, the name of the Mercy in old, in old English, I don't know how to pronounce it. That is not my language. But in Old English, it's, it's spelled like M-A-E-R-E. Yeah. Mary? Let's just call it the Mercy. Mer- I don't know. Anyway, yeah. but it means boundary river, and I found that fascinating because associating this with, obviously, you know, the 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 whole um, the connection of that place with um, the with colonialism, with um, the transatlantic slave trade, but also with this idea of birth, mm. birth the 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 border between the womb and the outside world is the first border that we ever cross yeah thinking about that you know to me that reinforced really the idea of the mercy as uh or the the estuary the canal the port as a birth canal to to modernity as we know it i think the uh I think this sentence of yours is so powerful that the Mersey is the birth canal to modernity. And when we were first sort of talking about it, I couldn't help but think about how, I mean, I think I told you how pre-Neolithic times used particular sites, physical sites like stones and henges and cairns as like otherworldly spaces to communicate across thresholds. And it's very interesting that you bring up this, 
this feeling of living in an extended present over the last couple of years, both in terms of, you know, actually commissioning and producing this project, <laughs> a sort of birth in itself, right? But also in terms of trying to find ways to communicate beyond the now, you know, and how might, for me, how might toxicants be a way into doing that that's something we can do beyond this sort of uh, biological focus, right? The reductionism of what biology is as molecules and atoms, but how maybe cultural practice can help reconnect um, some of these journeys or some of these doorways to thinking about our roles and responsibilities. Um, you know, something I want to recognize as well is that as a curator, uh, you get really interested in artists' work, um, but also their practice. And as I was putting together some thoughts about today's talk, I was really thinking about how the project, the exhibition takes a chemo-ethnographic approach, right? So it draws on anthropology um, and its methods of close observation and tracing to find deeper meanings or to find sort of, uh, sort of pathways or realities that are often obscured to us. And I feel that that's something you do in your wider practice with botanical life. That often you're tracing how we look at plants or how they're ritualized, particularly in Brazil where you're from, right? Uh, and how people grow and, and uh, live with these kind of plants outside of colonial orders, right? Um, and I, I mean, I want to ask you firstly, why botanical life in your work? Why is it such a re recurring um, method and approach? But also I want to talk about uh, within the, the essay and the commission itself, the bulrush, uh, this kind of read features a lot as one of the gifts. Um, and maybe i am kind of pose those two questions to you and you can pick up whatever one you want. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... It's, it's a very interesting, I think, path that took me to engage so much with plants in my work and with plant life. Um, so initially, um, for quite a few years, my research has both, you know, as an academic and initially as an academic, let's say, and then as an artist, um, my research focused on the, the bio let's say the biopolitics of reproduction and fertility. And uh, I started looking into things like birth control pills, um, implants, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, even like super dystopian things like birth control chips that can be, uh, that can be controlled uh, with, you know, one's phone, which is something that the, the, for the sorry the Bill, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is yeah is funding um, but anyway I started looking into those things and particularly my my argument and my my fundamental idea was that the control over reproduction was a fundamental trait to coloniality it was something that allowed um, yeah, colonial powers to, to maintain themselves, to sustain themselves in that position. So controlling the reproduction of colonial subjects was, um, was a key aspect 
of colonial domination. So starting from there, obviously, you know, and looking into things like the birth control pill, which was um, developed with clinical trials, highly unethical clinical trials in Puerto Rico, a place that is a colony to this day, uh, or how, for instance, IUDs were tested by Israeli scientists um, on Palestinian women, you know, how so many of those things, so many of those technologies, which are important, and that's, that's you know, what's, um, I think it's essential to, to keep that in mind. Those are important technologies. Of course, we need ways of managing fertility and reproduction and so on, but um, the way that they were developed started from the premise that certain, certain subjects and, and certain bodies were less, um, less deserving of care and less deserving of um, respect and attention and, and so on. And that allowed them to be utilized mm. like guinea pigs, like people were in Puerto Rico, like Palestinian women were, you know, and, uh, and that to me showed how or to, to perhaps use a word to connect with our project, the toxicity of colonialism, how it, it affects um, bodies on a molecular scale, even, you know, when we think about hormones, when we think about all of that. And also, it also showed me how um, the, I, I, I call them curses. It also um, showed me the curses of coloniality because all the, the, even the effects, the, um, the side effects of birth control pills that we are talking about today, serious side effects like thrombosis, like um, depression uh, or yeah, pulmonary embolism, you know, thrombosis that can develop, into can develop into pulmonary embolism, strokes, all those things, they were, they were happening in the 50s. They happened to um, people in Puerto Rico but and and this is an actual thing that i read in the actual paper that john rock and gregory pincus the two scientists who were leading this project uh, wrote they considered that a lot of the complaints that people made about the pill were the result of the emotional hyperactivity of puerto rican women that is a fancy way of calling them hysterical and you know it was i did i researched all of this for years um that was all part of my uh, my doctoral research actually and you know this is it is obviously a subject that interests me it is also a subject that enrages me deeply and looking at this meant looking at years for years and years at profound violence at you know, all this horrible violence being enacted upon people um, who were not, yeah, were not granted access to the category of human fully, you know, were not considered humans in quite the same way as, um, as white colonizers. So at the same time, you know, while I was doing all this research and looking into all these things, um, all these horrible histories, I also found a lot of histories of resistance. And the first plant that kind of got me into that, it, precisely, it was a plant. Um, 
histories of resistance that included, you know, um, or that were very much about collective or, or communal forms of care. And that included traditional, what is called often traditional medicine, which I don't know, it's, it's a term that I'm not crazy about, um, but um, included, yeah, forms of indigenous medicine. And one of the first plant that really got me into this was a plant called the peacock flower, which was used, and this is a difficult history too, but I think it points or it opens other doors. So um, that was a plant that was used during the occupation of the Americas uh, by Europeans. It was used by indigenous and African peoples to provoke abortions as a way of not having children that would be also enslaved and that would suffer the same fate. And of course, you know, that story of that plant um, brings up so many um, or highlights the complexity of even the conversation around abortion um, that, you know, so often I think in, I would say in, in um, approaches to feminism that are less uh, white feminism, this is what I mean. <laughs> um, that, yeah, that don't take into account the particular struggles of, um, of women of color and black women um, and indigenous uh, women and people in general, right? Not, not just women. Um, let's also take that into account. Um, totally. I mean, I think these, I think you, I'm just going to pull out a couple of things that you've said that I think are really moving and, and important to remember that, you know, um, technologies of social reproduction are not just made out of silicon, right? They're sort of, they're really, they're biological forms of control. I think that's a really important um, point to kind of reinstate. And also when you start to trace these histories, um, you start to see that their effects and their harms have been known for a long time. Um, and on the website, there's, I've put together a repository um, I've basically weaved together lots of various histories to do with toxicity in the Mersey. And one of them is about endocrine disruption. And in it was in the 20s and the 30s that the first um, large scale accounts of endocrine disruption, which were actually natural, not synthet um, synthetic, right? So from um, pigs, farmers finding that if the pigs ate too much clover, that the pigs wouldn't reproduce. And then about 10 years later, like about sheep. And then you start to see that all of these man-made accidents coming from the hormonal disruptions that come from synthetic toxicants. But, you know, in a history of uh, toxicity, that's not really thought about until the 60s, 70s. And so it's really interesting how certain people's voices or certain sort of responses to toxicity get really submerged and they're and, and kind of lost in history and that's what I see when you're trying to recover them with with stories of plant life um yeah yeah um I think that, oh yeah, yeah, yeah go no no you go no I was just gonna say that I think through plants um, in my work, I feel that I, I learn so much from them. 
and that they take me to so many places. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I wanted to, to pick up on the bulrush or cattails. There's so many names that this plant has. Um, but how the bulrush also took me to the Mersey in, in that way. Yeah, I mean, when you were telling me about all of the different uses for the bulrush across society, that it was used in North American cultures, indigenous cultures, as a building material, as a medicine, as, you know, it becomes this dark matter almost that holds societies together. And maybe you can cherry pick something about the bulrush or tell us a little story about it that you found. Um, yeah, yeah. That's something I, I really love about working with plants, which, you know, and has been my way of also divesting only from um, having or working within a, a reactive framework to coloniality and in, in terms of, you know, just, um, yeah, reacting to its, its violence and the pain that it causes. But through plants, I think I've learned to build new things and to, um, yeah, to, to work within kind of a, a constructive framework. And the bulrush for me, what I found really, really beautiful when I started researching it and, you know, when I found that it grew all around these marsh areas of the River Mercy. And I think also, it's, it's important to mention this, right, that I was looking specifically at margins and marshes and kind of in between spaces for, for this work, because I was interested, um, you know, as I said, like, okay, there's this birth canal to modernity that creates, again, all this pain. But if I would look only into that, it would be a very reactive kind of framework. So I wanted to think about okay, history, this is a history that has happened. We cannot undo it. We cannot um, erase it. But what can we build that is that points towards other futures, that points towards other possibilities? And the bulrush for me uh, does that. First of all, what's interesting is that this is a plant that, although it's pretty much all over the place today, um, it's a plant that originates from the Americas. So in a way it did the opposite pathway of, of all those ships that sailed from the River Mercy and from, from the canal, from the port. And uh, besides that, it is a plant that is adapted to live um, and to thrive really in these in between environments, in marshes, in places that it's not every plant that is able to, to live there, you know. And, uh, and when I started looking into it, what fascinated me at first was that this is a plant that not only lives, not only did all this kind of opposite direction, like not only travel in the opposite direction of these ships and is able to live in this unusual environment, but also it's a plant that, um, that is um, used very much in bioremediation. That is, it's a plant that is able to remove um, pollutants from water and soil, from the water and soil where it grows. And more than that, um, it's also a plant that when I started looking into it, 
has so many uses. Um, the there's like a central part of the stem that is edible. Also, the female flowers you can kind of like boil them and eat them like corn on the cob. Um, the it's a okay. Now I'm gonna describe the plant because everybody knows this plant. It's that plant that looks that you know lives in marshes and looks kind of like a hot dog on a stick. And this is the description that I use when I've been talking um, with people about this project. This is where when everyone does like, oh yes, I know it. <laughs> everywhere, this plant is everywhere because and that's the thing. It's not only. Um, it's not only a plant that you know does all of these things. It's edible. It's it also that brown sausage. Actually, if you kind of press it a little bit, it explodes in a cloud of fluff. Mm. It ends up. It's like a, a, a almost like a very intense version of a dandelion. And also, all that fluff is used for insulation by many peoples. Um, and indeed. One of the people uh, whose work I quote in the gift essay, Robin Wall Kimmer, she has one chapter in this beautiful book called Braiding Sweetgrass. I actually have it here. Um, like it. This gorgeous, gorgeous book um, where she talks about that in the Potowatami language, which is um, her language or the language of um, her uh, nation, they call this plant, we wrap, like literally the name means we wrap the baby in it because that fluff can be used for insulation for babies. It can also be used as a diaper. So it has so many uses. Um, but also she says that in the Mohawk language, there's a beautiful twist to that framing. So they, um, in the Mohawk language, the plant, um, the name of the plant means we are wrapped in it. And what she says is that this twist is so beautiful because um, this is such a generous plant that, you know, can be, can give food. Um, there's like a gel that if you like take off the leaves, it has a gel kind of like aloe vera gel mm. that also suits the skin. Um, it has, uh, I mean, the, the leaves can be used to build like protection, to build like a um, like a roof, you know. Um, so it has so many uses, and it is so generous in that sense. But in the Mohawk, and and what she says that it gives us so many gifts. But um, and you know that you know you can wrap the baby and everything. But what she says is that in the Mohawk language, the twist is that it's like we are her babies, and she wraps us in in her gifts you know so it's it's very very beautiful the way that she puts it and that's also why i wanted to um include her her um her phrasing yeah i think that's beautiful and also it's um thank you so much for listing out the different uses and and i couldn't help but think as you were sort of talking about the different uses like how much of a contrast there is between Robin Wall Kimmer talking about um, the hot dog or the bulrush as uh, as a gift and as something that's um, 
wrapped around us or about sort of a coexistent material versus this idea of, or maybe this false dichotomy, right? The, 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 the gift versus a resource, right? So the bulrush um, is a plant used in bioremediation. And, and I've seen so many um, scientific, but also sort of design projects where designers are using plants and as, oh, quick, they can clean up pollution. We can solve things by, you know, plants being used as a resource. And, um, and to me, I think a conversation that needs to be happening that maybe isn't happening as much is about these different value systems and, um, and how maybe they, how often I think we just think about things on a surface level. Oh, that sounds like a great idea, but we don't really inquire into the value systems behind them. And in, uh, in the process of commissioning, I mean, one of the great things about uh, being a curator and working with artists to commission works is that you have a number of conversations about the development. And in one of our conversations, we spoke a little bit about the generative qualities of land and water. Land and water being this kind of um, uh, reproductive uh, thing in the essay. And um, I wanted to maybe make that distinction between something that we've not touched upon, but is obviously latent in this discussion is the, the value systems of extractive industries, uh, such as um, carbon-based derivatives, petrochemical, oil, that kind of literally suck things out of the ground. And that being a very dirty process that's um, in the 20th century has been sort of pushed out of society, right? Like it happens out of sight, but it kind of is, um, its value system is very much about seeing everything in the land as free and also always kind of self-generating. And I want to sort of link it to your commission um, because you talk a lot about um, land and water being generative, right? And having a different value system that we live off the land, but that's not about social reproduction and, and it's not um, necessarily about extraction, but there's another value system at play. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I wondered if maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and maybe link it to the resistance control. I was very inspired by the fact that you find space um, through sort of the way in which people resist by using plants as, as sources. Sorry, that's a very long question. <laughs> no, and I, I, I love it. I love it because over the past couple of years, I've been, um, you know, I've, developed all of this thinking around reproduction and so on a little bit further and I've become very interested also in the the production of scarcity as a fundamental trait of of capitalism um, and I think you know the historically that of course starts from um, from you know so I, I often put it in a way that um, I, I often say like that to consume and to devour until nothing is left is a practice that is profoundly interwoven into the twin projects of colonialism, capitalism, right? And that goes from the foods taken from the Americas, uh, from the American continent to be cooked and served to Europeans, uh, chocolate, potatoes, tomatoes, all of that. Um, and also the consumption of actual subjects uh, 
at the table of the colonial economy, the consumption of black and brown people at the table of the colonial economy, um, and also the devouring of the earth itself in this endless quest for economic growth, right? And this is a kind of avidity that, of course, uh, leads to an unequal distribution of the conditions necessary for life. And um, a couple of years ago, when I was starting to think about these things, um, indigenous writer and activist Ayuton Krenaki um, published a book called uh, Ideas to Postpone the End of the World. I think at this point it's out in English too. Um, it, he published it uh, initially in Portuguese in Brazil, but at this point I think it's, um, it's available in English. And he says that when we remove the personhood from the river, the mountain, when we remove their senses, thinking that this is an exclusively human attribute, we allow these places to become residues of extractivist industrial activity. And what he says is that if there is an eagerness to consume nature, there's also one to consume subjectivities, our subjectivities. And kind of following this argument, he then asks, natural when you know talking about sustainable development he's and natural resources he asked natural resources to whom sustainable de development for what what is there to sustain and that to me is such a key question that has kind of led me over over the the past few years and has allowed me to i think frame really a lot of the work that i've done over over the past few years these reflections um, and to me, that connects so much also with what Robin Wall Kimmer discusses in Braiding Sweetgrass, um, because this is a framework, you know, when um, we divest from this uh, extractivist framework, this extra extractivist um, framework that has its origins in capitalism, in colonialism, um, then we need to start thinking about our relationship with land and with bodies of land, bodies of water, as a relation of reciprocity. Whatever we take, we also need to give. So mm -hmm. when we think about it in that way, it kind of flips the script, right? It's not just that, you know, this plant is working for us. That is not, there's not a hierarchy in that way. And what's interesting to me, even about the bulrush itself, is that it offers all of this, but also to me, and, and this is something I repeat over and over in the GIF essay, um, I, I repeat the idea that something is a promise and a threat at the same time. And I keep repeating this in the GIF essay, because to me, the bulrush is also that, because, um, and, and I say it because it is an invasive species because of the way that it um, that it grows. It grows very fast. Um, that fluff that it releases, like that dandelion-like fluff, those are seeds, and that spreads out super easily. It spread spreads out with the wind, right? And also, its um, its roots actually are not regular roots; they're rhizomes. <laughs> And those rhizomes spread, those are like creeping rhizomes that under that mud of the marsh, they spread around 
and they anchor entire groups of bulrushes in place so that they can withstand, you know, all the wind and wave action and all those things. So it's very interesting because it is, um, it speaks so much about collectivity. It speaks so much about um, also, um, yeah, you know, the, the power of collectivity of um, the leaves that grow like tightly packed together. So also the, the plant is stronger against wind and so on. Um, but it is also a threat. Mm. It also has, um, has, um, I've been, I've been repeating that to, to friends and to like, whenever I, I, I talk about this too, um, I keep saying that it has also fangs, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really poetic way to put it. Um, and there is this multifacetedness to to life and it's about um you know i i think there's a, there's something about communicating or basically being aware of threats and also opportunities here that is so important in your in your work and um i really kind of like as i go back and watch the video over and over again i'm sort of I almost become entranced by it because you kind of, there's the lapping of the tides. There's this kind of industrial music that kind of breaks down and comes together at different points. Um, and I and I can't help but think about this, uh, your work always operating within this kind of dualism between resistance and control, right? Um, and I have, a, there's a paragraph from the text. I mean, we should maybe say to the audience that um, the, as you go through the, the essay, sort of sections of text and gifts kind of submerge and then kind of like disappear, return and disappear at different points. And I just wanted to read out a little passage because you end um, talking about queerness and I, and I wanted to maybe ask you a little bit about um, how queerness functions in this work. And so you write, grasping is deeply implicated in the foundational act of coloniality. The establishment of hierarchical racial categories that determine who is granted access to the realm of humanity and who is not. A gesture that seeks to determine the hows and the what's of the existence of entire peoples on earth from the removed vantage point of the white gaze. Identities reduced and subsumed into discernible bites, translated into the normative binaries of hegemonic power. There is no room for fluidity, queerness becomes pollution. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what queerness becomes pollution means to you. I think, um, so this part came also from a reading of Edouard Glissant, uh, that, you know, whose, uh, whose work also gives a name to, to this gift essay. But Edouard Glissant is one of my favorite philosophers really. And his book, Poetics of Relation for me, it's one of those books that I keep going back to over and over again. And my copy at this point is so full of notes and, and like little like sticky things. So I, I remember the page for this or that that <laughs> it's an interesting thing to look at in itself. But um, it's one of those books that I, I first read years ago and 
whenever I go back to it, I still find new things and I still find things to think about and reflect. And lately I've been thinking a lot about this idea of grasping that he proposes. So what he says is that um, he, he has this like discussion of the idea of grasping and how um, within a colonial framework, grasping the, this need to make an other um, visible or, or readable, let's say, within the constraints of the white case is, is like a, a fundamental part of coloniality of, or um, of colonial uh, epistemologies, right? And, and this is why I, I guess this is um, one of the most famous or well-known aspects of his work. He has this part in the Poetics of Relation, this chapter called For Opacity. This is why he argues for the idea of opacity, uh, a refusal to make oneself readable within those constraints. So what he says is that in French, grasping um, is, uh, is a verb. And I think, and obviously in English too, um, you have this, ver this verb that says comprendre, that, that um, comprendre as in um, to understand, but it is also to, you know, it, it's the, the etymology of the word also implies that, implies that act of grasping. And, and when I read that um, over the, uh, recently, when I went through that again, to me, it brought up so much around, you know, the, how do you, um, how is this act of grasping implicated in so much, in so many of the violences of coloniality and or violences that are um, that derive or connect with uh, colonial structures of power. I started thinking about even like sexual harassment, the act of grasping the harasser, grasping the harassed. You know, that act that in grasping denies the humanity of someone. Um, the seizing of land. That oh, I mean, that's a very obvious one, right? Um, and there's so many different graspings that are um, implicated in or symbolically or literally in, in that. So that grasping and that, um, that desire to make or that impulse, let's say, to make um, a, a marginalized subject readable within these constraints of coloniality um, to me is um, also an act of, yeah, subsuming identities. Um, and I think um, in looking into decolonial theory that has become very clear to me, even with the imposition of a binary gender, uh, gender system, how uh, with colonization, um, this um, binary and, and patriarchal, heteropatriarchal gender system was imposed um, 
in many places and to so many peoples that had not necessarily had that before. And I think one, perhaps one good example, uh, we can find it in the work of uh, Nigerian scholar Oyeronke Oyewumi. Um, she, and she has this wonderful book called The Invention of Women, where she, yeah, where she um, looks into how Yoruba societies uh, before uh, colonial contact, they weren't organized around gender. So it was not an organizing principle of Yoruba society. But with colonization, um, the colonizers arrived. And what she says is that, and I love the way that she puts it, um, gender was the lens through which they saw things. So it didn't matter if gender was present or was a, a foundational hierarchical category in Yoruba society or not, they were gonna see it anyway. They were gonna assume that it existed anyway and impose it too. So this to me is, you know, this is why I, I mention all of this and I, and I talk about this grasping, um, this, um, this seizure, this occupation of a space that is physical and that is also epistemological and ontological. Um, and, uh, and this, um, and the subsequent framing of queerness that is anything that sits outside of that, of that framework that was imposed through coloniality as a form of pollution. Mm. And then we get back to this idea of the power, you know, if we return to Glisson, it's this idea of opacity is quite a powerful position. Right, you know, um, and claiming life outside of the categories placed upon them, whether it's about this kind of grasping and privatization or kind of a control of bodies through, you know, different sort of forms. Um, actually, there is this space, and, and you mentioned earlier that, that you're interested in this resistance, right, in this constructive framework. And as we've been talking for over, I think, 45 minutes now, um, I suppose I want to end with a question um, to you about resistance in the future. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the brutal occupation of Palestine has been on many people's minds a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, and in your own work, I mean, I've followed your work for a long time now, but in your own work, there's always been um, there's this gesture of you trying to articulate to fight for better futures, a fun fight against inequitable futures, right? Uh, and I think that happened, you know, um, a few years back when you're talking about the whiteness and the kind of narrowness of futuring and speculative design, but also through, um, you know, more recently you've spoken about the Zapatistas, uh, Zapatista, so the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, which are uh, a militant group from southern Mexico, who are known for sort of declaring or calling for, we want a world where many worlds fit, right? And, and I wondered if we could close um, thinking about this resistance and, and maybe you could share your current position, both, um, personally and politically, but also in relation to the art world, maybe, and how that's changing. It's, you know, uh, 
it's been very interesting over the past few years to see um, how the to see how the attitude towards the Palestinian struggle has slowly been shifting. It's very slow. It's been, I think what we're seeing now is extraordinary. I've never seen anything like this. And in, you know, I have to be honest, like years ago, I had to even kind of argue with the gallery uh, where I was exhibiting my work and then all of a sudden um, I was supposed to exhibit my work, a gallery in London. And then I was informed via their newsletter. So I was not, I, I didn't even know beforehand um, that there was uh, a work being exhibited alongside in that it was just, you know, this work that I was doing with a collaborator and um, the work of someone else a work that basically um, was uh, yeah, it, it kind of um, reinforced that narrative um, of the, how do you call it? Oh my God, I forgot the name of the institution, but it's like an institution from the state of Israel that is dedicated to uh, finding kind of ways of anchoring a claim to that land for the state of Israel um, through like archeological research. And I had to argue with the gallery because I refused to show my work next to that. Like, no, I'm sorry, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a big thing. Many very long emails were exchanged. <laughs> I remember the director of the gallery saying, oh, I had, I had never thought about this. And I'm like, how? Oh, that conversation. <laughs> how have you never thought about this? How are you inviting me to exhibit a work about decoloniality? It was a work about that. And, and this, you, you want to exhibit that at the same time? No, this cannot happen. And yeah. And, you know, in the end, it was uh, it was one of the rare instances where it actually worked to argue with people. And uh, so, you know, that kind of, I don't know, I, 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 it always surprises me when people kind of go with that argument and it's, are you are you that innocent? Come on, you know, like you're supposed your job is to know what you're showing. Um, but but I, I'm very glad to see the the volume of support that has been shown over the past few weeks. And one thing that that um, I think it's really important to to mention, and it's something that I. I always remember is that the Palestinian struggle and is fundamentally connected to all the struggles for liberation and decolonization, you know, and, and I, I'm really happy that you mentioned the Zapatista Army of National, Liber of National Liberation because um, this idea 
of a world where many worlds fit um, is something that um, that is so present even for me in the way that, for instance, Palestinian activists um, actually during BLM, during the Black Lives Matter protests, they sent so many tips to the people who were in that struggle on how to deal with things like tear gas, you know, how to, um, they, they actually taught people how to um, resist and how to, uh, how to um, deal with the violence enacted by the, the colonial state, the colonial state of the United States in that case. Um, but to me, you know, all of that, that solidarity and that, um, that idea of creating a world where many worlds fit is so present, even in, in those actions. And uh, I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but um, to me, it also drives home the, the something that is, I think is very fundamental, which is the idea that until every, until we're all free, nobody is free. Mm. Liberation only comes when it comes from everyone. And, and this is why I think it's so important that as artists and curators and cultural workers, we take a very clear stand on this. It's useless to talk about racism, to talk about gender, to talk about all those things, and then divest yourself from this conversation, from an, uh, uh, an apartheid state that is happening right now mm. as we speak. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I think you raised a really important point about, you know, we might be fighting for many different uh, worlds or the existence of many different worlds, but there is a collectivity in that and there's a collectivity in the struggle. Um, and I suppose we have an hour now, so um, maybe that's a good a good sort of point to close on and open up for questions. But I want to say uh, a huge thank you for taking the time to talk with me about the work. Um, for those of the audience who have not seen um, Louise's commission, The Sea Collapsed Into the Pleasures of Sand, I urge you to go and uh, take a little bit of time out and just let it wash over you and think about the stories of um, colonial history, plant life, but also the chemical industry in Liverpool that we didn't even get to touch on really. Um, so thank you. Thank you. It's always wonderful to talk. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Abandoned Normal Devices podcast. And thank you to Arts Council England for supporting this production. If you like the podcast, please do subscribe and give us a rating, share it with friends, and listen back in the future. Thank you.